Well, we are talking about what does the, what does the Bible say about? And we're basing that on uh, biblical life lessons that for, uh, 2 Peter 1.3 says. It says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so technically, this is our third week into that. The first week we talked about um, godliness, what God requires of us in the way of being godly. And we said it's not just obeying a set of rules, but it's how you live your life so that people see Jesus in you. Uh, if we say we love and appreciate him, do our actions bear that out? In other words, do we walk the talk? Do people know we're Christians by what we do? Last week we talked about what God says about fear, that our knowledge of God's love for us should keep us or help us conquer the fear that's associated with situations we face. How many of you get fearful at times? If you weren't here last week at the sermon, the Bible talks about how God is able to overcome that in us. And as we said before, we can't do that of ourselves. The Holy Spirit that's in us helps us to overcome the fear that comes our way. Now, today we're going to talk about marriage. Now, that's a topic that's in the news a lot. It's on every aspect of society. You see things in TV shows and movies and social media, blogs, websites. Everybody's got something to say about marriage. And everybody has their own idea about what marriage is. But what really matters is not what I think. But what does the Bible say? What does God say about marriage? So this is going to be, now I like this stuff. We're going to show a lot of statistics and stuff that, that bear out what God says, but it, it's encouraging to me. I have a, a dictionary in my office from 1916 because I like to look up definitions of words that were you know, that old, compare them to what the definitions are today. And so I did that with the word marriage. And we're going to see how that changed over time. Now I, I look at words as like, pictures, paintings, and I, I have a problem with when definitions of words change over time, because what happens when you change the definition of the word, you basically change the word. Now, I'll give you an example of that. Suppose, and I say the words are, are like paintings. Suppose I look at a, you know, a Van Gogh or a Rembrandt or a Michelangelo painting, and I decide to give it a different taste, and I start to paint over the original with my interpretation of what that should be. You see what I'm saying? Now, if I did that, it's changing the original painting. And I'm sure if I did that, people would be drawn and quarter me. Or maybe I look at something like Starry Night, the picture of Starry Night, and we make it orange instead of blue. Because that's what I think it should be. Well, instead of doing that, why don't I just paint another painting. Why don't I do and draw what I think it should be and leave the original word alone? And I think what happens when we change the definition of a word, we, we overpaint what the word is and we now lose the meaning of what the word actually means. So the 1916 definition says this, the state, status, or mutual relationship of husband and wife, wedlock, act of marrying or right used in marrying a wedding. That was what 1916 says. Now what does it say today? Google has this definition, and since it's Google, it must be true. The legally or formally recognized union of two people as partners in a personal relationship. Merriam-Webster Online 
says this, the state of being united as spouses in a consensual and contractual relationship recognized by law. And then they go on to elaborate all different types of marriage. When you change the meaning of a word, you change the intent and purpose of the word. Words were designed to imply intent because the words actually mean something specific. If I were to say this is red, if I pick up something that's blue, it's not red. It's still blue. No matter how much we want to make it red, it's not, it's blue. When we change the meaning, we change the intent. And I think that's what's happening in society today. The, the meaning of the word is beginning to change, obviously. And so people are now adapting to the new meaning rather than the original intent of the word. Now, we're not going to talk about all the specifics of that stuff. We're going to look at what God says about that. Why is it an institution that God values? Why is it an institution that God put together? And we're going to see that there are quantifiable evidence that supports the value of marriage to the individual and to the society. There's benefits. Who thunk, who'd have thunk it? That whatever God says benefits people. So let's look at the first one. The first thing is God ordained marriage. All the way back at the beginning, God knew what he was doing. Genesis 2.20, and then this is talking about Adam. He says he gave names to all the livestock, birds, and wild animals. But still there was no comp- uh, companion suitable for him. So the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He took one of Adam's ribs and closed up the place from which it had been taken. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to Adam. At last, Adam exclaimed, she is part of my own flesh and bones. She will be called woman because she was taken out of a man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now, back in the garden, there was no say yes to the dress. There was no big, big formal wedding that we know of today. But the intent is the same. Two people together, man and woman for life, as a family. And Jesus kind of doubles down on that when, he, when he's talking to the Pharisees. In Matthew 19, it says the, some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one separate them, for God has joined them together. So he kind of expands on that. And then Paul, when Paul talks about the relationship between Christ and the church, uses marriage as the example. In Ephesians 5.31, As scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. God designed it from the very beginning. That's the way God put it together, and that's the way we should follow it. And it was his idea, and it was designed for our benefit. And the second thing God did is not only did he he ordain it, he designed it. You ever heard the the sentence, uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts? One whole thing is greater than the sum of the parts that put it together. Now, I'm a, I'm a car guy. You all know I'm a car guy. And I like looking at restored cars. And what would really kill me is if they took a nice restored card, car and took it apart and sold the parts by itself. Now, you would get more money probably from doing that. 
but you lose what you have. When God says the two become one, it's because the whole is greater than each individual are by themselves. When God ordained marriage, he said basically the whole is greater than some of its parts. Genesis 2.18 says it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the King James uses the word help meet. The New American Standard uses the word helper. It's actually just one word. And the word means to surround, protect, or aid. When God put this together, the helper that we are to have is that man was designed to protect the woman. That was man's purpose, to protect her. And I believe that most of the women still want that. Protection gives man a job. That's his goal. And I think a lot of the the things we hear today, how women don't need men and women are, you know, different or the same as men, I think that kind of not only hurts them, it hurts the guys. Because now the guys have lost their purpose of protecting the woman in their life. And what happens from that point, if it now becomes that the sexes are equal and everything a man can do, a woman can do, and a woman doesn't need a man and all that, and all that kind of malarkey, what happens now? And as we go back to the definition we heard of Mary Webster, it's a contractual relationship. Now they're under a contract. And so what that does, if they're married, it's a contract. If they're not married, now the, the affairs don't matter because men and women are the same. Men don't need to protect women because women don't want to be protected. It all degrades over time because the reason that God put women here, part of it is for us to protect them. And once we are able to do that, then the women are the ones who help us become better. How many agree with that? How many agree with that? And all the women should say yes. Men and women were designed to complement each other. They were not designed to be exactly the same. If we were the same, one of us would be redundant. A helper is someone who can help you do the tasks that you either can't do by yourself or you can't do at all. How many know that there are situations that guys just can't do? And all the women said yes. And how many know there's things that guys can do that women can't do? They are designed differently. Everyone's cracking up, okay. Now, I mentioned earlier that marriage is a benefit to not only us as individuals, but societies. But we're gonna look at both of those. How is it beneficial to the individual? Now, here's some statistics that you've probably heard before. I'm gonna share them again. Now, according to Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Mellon's in Pittsburgh. How many know CMU in Pittsburgh? That is the one place when I was in sales, I dealt with colleges and hospitals. That's the one place that I went into and just felt this overwhelming evil because it was such a godless institution. But this is statistics that they have determined, a place that has no no love for God. 
Married people face far less stress than singles. Married people have lower levels of inflammation and chronic disease. Married couples produce more serotonin, which maintains mood balances and decreases depression, anxiety, and anger. Married, anger? <laughs> married couples consistently live longer. Married couples have a better intimate life in spite of what you see on TV and movies. This is according to CMU. Now, focus on the family, they, they are a Christian organization. They say this, married couples are more likely to live longer, more likely to be physically healthier, more likely to be mentally healthier, more likely to be happier, more likely to recover from illness quicker and more successfully, and married couples generally take better care of themselves and avoid risky behavior. Now these are institutions that really, some of them, not, not big God fans. So we have marriage, and then we have, they call it cohabitation, living together. That's the same thing, right? According to Focus on the Family, it says several researchers, not all Christians, have noticed that cohabitors have poor psychological well-being compared to married individuals, quote, suggesting that the protection effects of marriage are not as applicable to cohabitation. Statistics tell us that people who generally live together for a longer period of time then get married, divorced at a higher rate than those who don't. How does that, if that was individuals. How does it affect children or society in general? According to the American College of Pediatricians, again, not a Christian organization, marriage is both public and private because it's legally binding. Children develop best when they have a secure attachment with a father and a mother who are faithful to each other. Countless studies offer data on the benefits of these relationships. Children born out of wedlock immediately are at greater risk for many of the difficulties associated with fatherless, poverty, and family stress. What's the number one issue with, with males today? Fatherlessness. There's no dad in the home. Statistically, overall, it's over 50% of the children born are born without a dad present. In, in some sections of society, that number raises to 70 and 75%. And you wonder why the crime rate is going up and the statistics back up the fact that where there's no father, there's less crime, less ability, or more crime, more delinquency, and all those things. Marriage has been a long provision for controlling and civilizing intimacy. You know, you, you watch TV and you watch movies and you think the ultimate goal of a relationship is to be intimate. Any relationship, anywhere, between anybody. But the studies say that civilized, controlled, is better for society than not. While many attempts to take precaution against a failed marriage by cohabiting with a partner first, many studies reveal that the counterintuitive truth that cohabitation decreases marriage or relationship success. Again, not a, not a Christian organization. Their article concluded with this statement. While it's impossible to change our society to accommodate traditional marriage, in other words, we've gone too far, 
that we're not going to get back what we had before. And in family as it once did, we must recognize the value of marriage as more than just a husband and wife and their individual wants and needs. Traditional marriage, this is their final statement. The marriage is the key to the happiness and success of the next generation and the establishment of a healthy and moral society. You want the next generation to be better? Get married. Do it in that order. There's, I think there was, I saw a quote, if I can get this right, I didn't have it in my notes. To be a success in society and to be able to prosper, there's only three things you gotta do. Finish high school. Don't have a baby before you're married. Get a job. If you do those three things, your chances of succeeding are astronomically better than if any three of those, any one of those three fail. Now, that was benefits for children in, let's look at society in general. One group at a time. The benefits for children, according to the Heritage Society, says looking at the benefits for children, there is a wealth of evidence that children living in two-parent homes are better off than those in single-family parent families. They are 44% less likely to be physically abused, 47% less likely to suffer physical neglect, 43% less likely to suffer emotional neglect, 55% less likely to suffer some form of child abuse. Those living with the two married parents through age 16 have higher grades, higher college aspirations, better attendance than children in one-parent families or who experience family disruption. They're also as half as likely to drop out of high school. That's the benefit for children. Benefits for women. For women, despite a whole generation of a movement that has misled them into thinking that marriage is not necessary to their interest, the evidence proves otherwise. Studies show that wives are 30% more likely to rate their health excellent or good more than single women of the same age. In addition to married women and men, are less likely to suffer long-term chronic illnesses or disabilities than single women. And mortality rates are less than one-third as high among married women as among non-married women. Benefits for the guys. Says, finally, the evidence shows that marriage benefits men significantly and serves as a civilizing influence on them. Notably, single men have almost six times the probability of being incarcerated as married men. And men who live with their biological children are more involved in the community and service organizations, more connected to their own siblings, their own adult children, and their own aging parents. Fathers living with their children invest more hours per week in work and careers than non-fathers. You know, you look at this evidence, and it's like, okay, yeah, I've heard that before. It's boring. I don't. What's the point? The point is, God knows what he's talking about. And even worldly things that have nothing to do with God back up what God says. The third thing that marriage does, God honors marriage. Hebrews 13.4 says marriage should be honored by all. Now we'll get into the roles of the men and women later in the series, but if it says that God honors marriage, I believe that first and foremost, the husband and wife should honor their marriage above all. 
They should guard their marriage and protect it from the traps of the world. I went, when I took my preaching test, my oral exam, they ask you the question, what's your order of importance? What do you know? List your three top things. And what they want you to say is God, family, church. They do not want you to say God, church, family. Because if you, and the Bible says, if you can't run your family, you can't run a church. And there are many guys that have sacrificed their families on the altar of ministry. And so we want to protect it. We all know that divorce is prevalent today. The church should be showing the ones and everyone else how it's done, why there's a benefit, why we believe it, why are we benefiting from God's blessing. And you know what, for the most part we do. Now, you've probably heard the false statistic that the divorce is as high in a church as it is in the world. How many have heard that quoted sometimes? What's well, not true. What they look at is they look at churchgoers in general, in any church, any religion, any faith. Christians significantly have a lower divorce rate than others. Why is that? Because I believe Christians, if we practice what the Bible says, we shouldn't have divorce. The practice of forgiveness and humility and doing what God says in the marriages are able to keep them intact. How many of you argue with your spouse? Oh, come on. <laughs> Disagree. Loudly. <laughs> or, or vehemently. Every, you know, when you have two people together, the Bible says, not the Bible, it says I say, you have two people together, you got three opinions. It, it's a matter of fact that two people together aren't going to agree on everything. And how you handle that is the key to keeping the relationship going. In spite of problems and situations, God says he is able to overcome those if we follow what he says. Now we know that there are folks who have experienced divorce. And so you know the heartache and the grief that comes with that. And there's a reason that God says he hates it. Because he knows how it hurts people. He knows how it hurts you. Now for years the church has treated divorce like the unpardonable sin. And it used to, and the AG has actually changed their stance on that lately. When I first got ordained, it was, if you were divorced in any area, of, any time in your life, you were disqualified from pastoring. You can be an axe-murdering pedophile, but you, can't, but you can't be a divorced pastor. They've modified that to, have you been divorced since you were saved? Because if God forgives every sin up to the point of salvation, you want with a clean slate. So they've modified that. They've, they've kind of backed off on the unpardonable sin thing. And I, and I think we need to be careful on how we treat that because God does not treat it sometimes as we treat it. Because God's heart is to restore each person. 
How many know we all make mistakes? We all sin. I mean, sin, we sin, right? There's, there's a, a phrase that says, how does it go and get it right? We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners by nature. That's our nature. And so when we sin or something happens to us and we wind up in the divorce category, it's the same as every other sin. And God's heart is to restore that person. God's heart is to make that person whole. God's heart, the Bible says, he's a father to the fatherless, a husband to the husbandless. God wants to fill the void that that has occurred. Where are you now? Maybe you're not with your original spouse. You know what? God picks up where you are. God picks up where you are. Where are you now? Not what did you do? God wants to take you from where you are right now to the point where he has you. Now I said this on Wednesday night that we, and I've said it probably here on Sunday morning, we, where we are now is a culmination of every decision, every choice we've made up to this point. Some decision way back 20 years ago allowed us to be here today. I, I use this example when, before I, I knew my wife from college and she was friends with my brother. She was the same age as my brother. And we had all graduated and we were all done with college and um, my, her and my brother get together and we're talking and my brother says, hey, would you wanna go out with my brother Jeff? Her answer was no. <laughs> no, I knew him in college, no. He comes home and says, hey, call Anna. She wants to go out with you. If he didn't say that, that one sentence, if he didn't say that, that one choice, it'd be totally different today. If she just actually stay, stuck with the no, but instead she was gracious and said yes. Any, every little decision, every little choice you make up to now brings you to where you are. God wants to use you where you are. He's not looking at your past. He's not looking where you were. He's looking at where you are right now. Every choice, every decision is all in the past. And you can't get it back. But God, your future is not mapped out yet. What God wants to do with you, how God wants to bless you, isn't predetermined. It's based on, are you willing to go from here forward? We talked on Wednesday night about guilt and how to be free from guilt. And a lot of times we live on, we, we wallow in the guilt and on the decisions we've made in our past. And the Bible says we need to get rid of the guilt. It's gone, you can't change it, can't do anything about it, but you can move on from here. And when God says marriage is his idea, he knows there's gonna be people that, that blow it. He knows it's gonna happen. But it's not, it's not gonna keep you from where God wants you to be. Now, I mentioned before these, you know, these statistics and facts, they could seem boring and you've heard them before. But I keep wanting to stress that the world acknowledges what we know to be true. <laughs> there is a benefit to marriage. There is a benefit to the way God designed it. And the world's statistics prove it, prove it right. 
So when people try to get around marriage or they don't want to commit or they just want to play the field, quote, not only do they miss out on the benefits that God has already ordained, the stats tell us their lives are not going to be what they think they are or what they're going to be. Regardless of what we see portrayed on TV in the movies and books, the overwhelming evidence is that that type of lifestyle does not play out the way that it does in the movies or what we think is going to happen. Why do we think there's such an assault on marriage today? Why do we think people want to change the definition of the word? Because we know that anything that God designs, everything that God ordains, the enemy tries to destroy. If he can't destroy it, he perverts it. He changes it. What better way, look at all the positive aspects that marriage has, not only individuals, but society as a whole. What better way to attack society than by attacking marriage? Because it has such tentacles that it reaches into every area. As believers, we cannot be taken in by how society is trying to redefine marriage. And we can't even let how we feel at any given moment change what God's word says. You know, I'm a time traveling kind of guy. I like that stuff. I've been watching this show about time traveling. What they were trying to do, they would send someone back in time to kill a person's younger self to prevent them from doing something great in the future. And all the, all the things they would accomplish. When they're 10 or 12, they have little effect. But when they're 30 or 40, their, their blessing to society is just magnified. So if they can stop that at the beginning, society changes. The enemy knows that if he can get into marriage and stop it right now, the, the overwhelming negative effects it will have in society will just spread over and over again. And that's why as Christians, we need to be solid in our understanding of marriage, that God ordained it, God designed it, and God honors it. And our job is to protect it and promote God's version. Why? Not that we want to tell people that we're right and they're wrong, We want them to see the benefits that God has already told us is gonna happen and the world has backed up what God says. When they see the benefits of how Christians live and Christian marriages, how we are able to accomplish things and move forward and do great things, the world sees that and it goes back to what we said at godliness, people see your lives. They see how you're able to overcome conflict and decisions and and problems that come your way and you're able to overcome that and they wanna know how you're doing it. People whose marriages are in trouble will go to a Christian couple, hey, help me, what are you guys doing? Our lives in every area, when we live out that godliness and we do what God says, people want to know. And we have the ability and the privilege to tell them why it works. And ultimately that leads to what? Leading them to Jesus, right? Isn't that our goal? to lead others to what we already have, to experience what we've already experienced. I've asked the teens this, or I've told the teens this, if you can go back, would you go back? Would you go back 
and not be a Christian, in other words? Would you, do you, do you regret ever being a Christian? you ever regret saying yes to Jesus? Now, nobody I know has said yes to that. Because why? They knew what it was like before. Why would you go back and change it? And if, if we understand that now, we would say, no, nah, man, we would never go back. We had the ability to tell people who were there how to get here because of what we've experienced. And we have the ability to do that, and we have the privilege to do that. And I know that God wants to do that. Now, last week, we had our Invite Your One. We had a few guests. The purpose was not only to bring them that day. The purpose, part of it, or the most part of it, was to get us comfortable asking people to come. When we give you a definite date, it pushes you to ask, and then once you ask and you realize this isn't that bad, it gives you now courage and the opportunity to do it again. And you never know the people that we asked who didn't make it might make it in the future again because we went out and did that. We're able to do that. Marriage is just one aspect that we can relate to people. Everyone knows about marriage. And we are able to share with them what God's done for us. Would you stand as we close this morning? Every head bowed, if you would, every eye closed. We sang that song this morning, Oh, Come to the Altar. For anyone to really experience the benefits of of Christianity, the benefits of knowing Jesus, they actually have to know Jesus. Going to church doesn't necessarily make you know Jesus. If you enjoy the benefits of a God-honoring marriage, you have to know Jesus. And the song basically says, come to the altar and lay all these things at his feet and then walk away feeling the difference that Christ makes in your life. If you're here this morning, it's not by accident God ordained you to be here. You're here because he wanted you to hear something, see something, experience something that he knew would change your life. If you don't know Jesus, the Bible says these things are written that we may know we have eternal life. So if you don't know Jesus, you don't know, you're not sure about eternal life, you're not sure about this stuff, the Bible says you can be assured, you can have confidence in your relationship with Christ. If you don't, if you're not sure, but you want to be sure, and you want the benefits of knowing Jesus, I want you to lift your hand right now. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you, Jesus. I thank you for what you do in our lives. I thank you, Lord, for for blessing us and giving us a guideline so that our lives would be the best they can be. It's simple. If we follow your word, we will experience blessing. It doesn't mean we're free from hardship. 
It just means that God has given us the ability to overcome those obstacles and that hardship. Lord, I pray your blessings upon each person here. Allow us to really understand that. Allow us to cling to it and allow it to really affect the way we live so that not only internally, Lord, but externally people can see a difference in us through our marriages, through our relationships, through your forgiveness in our lives on every situation. Let people see Jesus in all that we do. Lord, I commit each person to you. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for their lives. I pray your blessings upon them. Allow them to really experience the power of God every day. Now, Lord, we ask you to bless our time of fellowship at the picnic. I pray that your Holy Spirit is there to bless the food and bless our encouragement and our time together. That it be a great time of edification for us and glorification for you. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great time. We'll see you out by the picnic area in a few minutes.